You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I am delighted to bring you Kara Collier. Kara is the co-founder of NutriSense. NutriSense is the program I've been using, the biosensor I've been using to track my blood sugar. It has been an incredibly insightful month, and I was so excited to get her on here because I had a whole slew of questions after doing it. I hope you enjoy this episode. It is jam-packed with very valuable information that may just change your life. The middle-aged middle is no joke. And so I recently reached out to NutriSense about their subscription program utilizing their biosensor to have a look at what my blood sugar was doing in response to the foods I was eating. I noticed that certain foods eaten at certain times of day along with stress and sleep disruption all caused all kinds of aberrations to my blood sugar. It was very insightful. And after a month long, I have been able to shed some of that fluff on my tummy. When you embark on a one month subscription with NutriSense, you can save $30 by using code DRTINA30 at checkout. You're gonna wanna use the link in the show notes to get there and put that coupon code in at checkout. Get yourself a couple months subscription if you can. I think it's gonna give you insightful information that might just change your life. Each subscription comes with access to their expert dietitians who will help you interpret the data on the very cool app that comes along with it. And the information you're gonna glean from this will truly be life-changing. Welcome Kara Collier to the Dr. Tina Show. I am so excited to have you here today. We are going to talk about blood sugar monitoring and blood sugar handling in general. And you know, I am a big fan of metabolic health. And so I was excited to get you on to talk about NutriSense, which is who you work for. So could you introduce yourself to the audience for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. So um, I'm a dietitian by trade. I started my career in a clinical nutrition world, working in hospitals, working with patients. As I'm sure you can relate to and understand, I very quickly realized that wasn't going to be the most effective way to help people through the traditional healthcare system. Um, So instead, I kind of jumped ship eventually and helped start NutriSense, where I'm a co-founder and the VP of health there. And so at NutriSense, what we're really focused on doing is helping to actually address that metabolic crisis that we all are familiar with. Uh, So our mission as a company is to help anyone discover and reach their health potential. And we utilize the continuous glucose monitoring technology plus uh, dietitian expertise in order to help people along their health journey and give them real data that helps drive behavior change. I love it. You just said it in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, I found you guys years ago and I was so excited to work with you. The first time I used one of your biosensors was in 2020, but I was really stressed out. I was actually consuming a little alcohol that I don't drink anymore, my audience knows. And I found it to be so interesting at how different aspects of my life and behavior altered what my blood sugar was doing. Your app is so awesome because you can just track right along with it. And then like you said, there's expert dietitian interaction. So I was able to have somebody explain to me what all of those blips and valleys meant. But then I let it go for a while and I, cause stress got so high during the pandemic and I eventually circled back to you guys and you sent me two biosensors. So I was able to track it for a full month and I, with no alcohol. So very different sleep habits at that point because alcohol ruins your deep sleep. And when your deep sleep is ruined, your blood sugar is ruined. <laughs> so it's been so insightful to see how stress, um, disrupted sleep, and then obviously different foods 
would impact my blood sugar throughout the day. So I thought we could talk about those three things for the most part, if you're cool with it. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. Okay. And one thing, and just like from a high level, you touched on those big factors, but so many people when we, when I'm talking about glucose or metabolic health or continuous glucose monitoring, of course, the first thing people think about is carbohydrates or nutrition and sugar, and they don't realize how much glucose is affected by these core pillars of health which is really why we love to use it as a data stream. Because if you think about like 80-20 rule, how are you gonna get the biggest bang for your buck from like the minimal amount of information? It tells you a lot about these different categories of health and can help you master some of those fundamentals. So happy to dig into it. Well, two things, three that I wanna touch on first. So the first thing I noticed was that I was able to input the amounts of food I was having. And I only did that for a few days. I didn't get too caught up in it, but it did let me know that I was for the most part, generally speaking, able to hit my, the only thing I'm ever concerned about is hitting for as far as macros goes is just hitting my protein quotient. Like I just wanna make sure I get enough protein in. I'm not worried about fat. I'm not worried about carbs because I'm pretty strict about all that anyway. I run my blood at least annually. I look at it, you know, and just, one lab value with a blood draw. So that's just a snapshot in time. And it doesn't tell us too much except what was happening at that moment. Um, But I noticed that I was able to hit my protein goal. And I thought that was incredible. I mean, like immediately I was like, oh, when I will, (laughs) or conversely would have a stressful day and didn't hit it. And I would definitely notice how I felt. And because I was having to track it, I think that was I mean, that was just night and day difference of instead of skimping all day because you're busy and you just forget to eat and then noticing how crummy I felt at night and then noticing how that impacted my sleep. So even just the, I know that's not part of the monitoring system, but it is part of your app. And I thought it was, it's really nicely done in there. So I thought we could talk about that a little. Do folks use that feature often? And is it eye-opening to many of them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to give people a little bit more context of what you can expect to see, of course, there's the continuous glucose data stream. So that's kind of the core data that's coming in, 24-7 glucose values. But as you mentioned, we also have a meal tracker inside and people will use it for kind of two different use cases. One way, if you want to just keep it simple and you want to keep a record of how did I respond to this general type of meal with my glucose values, you could just add a description of what you're you're eating or a quick picture. So super easy. That way, you know, let's say you use the product for three months and you knew that you had sweet potatoes at some point and you couldn't remember how you responded to sweet potatoes. You can search for that and see your history of logging that meal. Or you can go a layer deeper and you can track your full nutritional intake along with it. So that's, you know, your macros, your ingredients. And what I find helpful for more thorough tracking is that awareness step. I don't think that really anybody needs to track exactly what they're eating every single day for the rest of their life. But if it's been a while since you've tracked or you're really not sure where you stand, it's a great first step because it's an awareness piece. You don't know what you don't know. And it could be one of those things where exactly like you're saying, I checked off that goal. I feel good. And that's starting that positive flywheel um, of action, you know, feeling good about your habits or maybe it really uncovers some deficits you might have. And again, we might focus most on protein typically first. Sometimes it might be the carbohydrate threshold we're really playing with depending on the person and where they're coming from. 
But a lot of times we recommend people tracking more thoroughly in the beginning until we get in a groove and we're setting some of those higher priority goals to focus on. And then we can move into kind of more of an execution mode and we might not need to do that tracking all the time. Yeah, because I, I'm not, I mean, with my audience, I'm just not one to track macros. I think it's overkill. Yeah. And coming from a background where I struggled with an eating disorder for a huge part of my life, like obsessing over my food is not my jam. So I yeah. I get though that I think a lot of folks are eating completely mindlessly and not realizing at all what they're consuming. And so like you mentioned, that carbohydrate threshold, I, I think would be key for a lot of people to have a, a good awareness of like just how much they're taking in. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those things where, you know, people always ask me, what exactly should I eat? Um, How many carbs? How many protein? And as I'm sure you have also answered this question is it depends. It's personalized. It's it might even depend on you, depending on if it's, you know, what day of the week it is or what routine you're in. You might personally also be adjusting your intake and it's definitely going to differ from person to person. But one thing that is usually universally true is that most people are overdoing carbohydrates. Some people are underdoing it and we might even up it. And so there's really kind of a threshold and it's going to depend on a lot of things. But as a general society, you know, the nutrition recommendations that are like 40 to 60 percent of your calories from carbohydrates doesn't work very well for pretty much anyone. So if we're following those general recommendations, especially if there's a baseline level of potentially metabolic dysfunction, um, we're going to have to adjust that threshold most likely for many people. Yeah. It was so cool too. The minute my app turned on, once it started gathering data, I got an email directly and a message on the app at the same time coincided from one of your expert dietitians reached out to me and said, hey, I noticed your app's been activated or your monitor, um, your biosensor has been activated and let me know if you have any questions. And then a few days later, he reached back out and he said, hey, I noticed this and this and this about the different meals and the different spikes. And he was telling me what some of these, because when you open it, it's so cool that you can track I mean, I was able to go back to 2020 on the app and yeah. see what I was doing then. It was so cool. So you can track your meals, you can track your data. Um, but it was neat for him to explain to me what each one of these, and we don't have to necessarily go into it, but I do, I do want to talk about it a little bit about what each one of these little um, acronyms was under the spike. And so what he taught me, which I I understood, but it was nice to have him explain it. And I thought maybe you could explain it to the audience. We're concerned about the size of the spike of the blood sugar, but we're also concerned about the time underneath that spike and then how many spikes you're having throughout the day. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're, you can think about what you're looking at uh, when you're analyzing your glucose data, both from a bigger picture view, like what's happening in a 24 hour time period or what's happening in a three month time period. And in that, we're looking more at like average glucose, time within your threshold, how high did you go overall? And then we can also zoom in and look at what's happening at a per meal basis. And that's where we, you know, we have glucose metrics or a score. That's both your daily score and a per meal score that kind of summarizes this. For some people who don't want to get too in the weeds, we have a one to 10 scale, gives you a quick like green light, red light. Or for people who really want to know the nitty gritty, the data nerds out there, you can, we can have the scores broken down so you can see kind of which components are driving it. And in that meal score, we're going to have, as you're mentioning, how high did your glucose go? We want to keep it below 140 for our non-diabetics, our healthy population, those who are looking to optimize. So that's about like the speak or the spike um, peak there. 
And then the second is that area under the curve, like how much exposure to glucose levels did you have in a two hour window after you've eaten? So it's okay to have a glucose spike that goes up, especially if it's something we would expect. You know, if you had some carbohydrates in your meal, we expect glucose to fluctuate, fluctuate a little bit, and that's okay. I think a big myth too is that glucose has to be completely flat all of the time. And that's not true either. We expect it to fluctuate, but then the question is, how much is it fluctuating? And is, is it within what is a reasonable, metabolically healthy system? And so we'll expect it maybe to go up, but then we want it to come back down within two hours and have a reasonable, what we call delta. So how much did that glucose jump during that two hour window? So maybe your baseline glucose, you started at 70 and it jumped all the way to 139. So maybe it's below our 140 threshold, but it's a pretty drastic change in glucose. And that's pretty stressful in the system. Again, another thing that I like to reiterate to people is one big big glucose spike every once in a while is not going to, you know, break the system down. It's really about those repetitive instances. So if every single day your go-to lunch meal is giving you that big jump in glucose, it's crossing that threshold, then we really want to think about how we can adjust that, how we can make that a more stable glucose response. But if it's a glucose response you have once a year when you have a splurge moment, it's okay. You know, it's it's going, it's okay. Our systems are pretty resilient. It's really about those daily habits and your daily glucose responses. Well, it was what was interesting to me is if I had a big spike. So let's take a, I, I did a whole podcast episode on my experience with using your biosensor. So folks yeah. can go back and listen to that. But something that I was surprised by was I had a bowl of beef noodle soup and Oh my gosh, my blood sugar exploded. And what's cool is you get to actually see your insulin kick up because your blood sugar will spike. And if you have a healthy insulin response, which I do, all of a sudden it goes whoop down a bit because like there's the insulin and then it'll blip back up for a little second hump and then it'll come down. And I, I, I'm assuming you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that's probably normal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that shows essentially like a healthy, robust insulin response. Because you can think about it as those two spikes usually mean, A, you probably had a big meal that was pretty carb heavy and also probably had a lot of like fat in it as well. But B, you probably have a very healthy metabolic system that's just trying to process that meal. And so that's showing like your glucose went up initially. We have a sensitive insulin system that is responding to that, brings it back down. But then it might have been a larger meal, a lot of carbohydrates, and maybe the fat is delaying the digestion of that carbohydrate. So our glucose is coming back up again, and then our body responds again. What we typically see happen in someone who's more insulin resistant, um, somebody who's on that metabolic dysfunction spectrum, is that they'll eat that same meal and glucose will just keep climbing, climbing, oh. climbing for hours because we have a delayed glucose or a delayed insulin response. So it's not really catching that response for an hour, two hours, three hours later. And then we're not as insulin sensitive, so it's harder for it to come back down. So it might be a six-hour slow climb, slow decrease eventually. Whereas somebody who's more metabolically healthy will see those sharper, you know, up and then our body's trying to readjust and, and kind of get back to homeostasis, so to speak. That is so interesting. And what a disaster that would be. Because that's, I mean, insulin is pro-grow, you know, yeah. insulin is not our friend when it's not coming at the right time. And to have six hours of a slow putter of insulin leaking out is not a and, good thing for the yeah. body. No, and 99% of the time, somebody who is insulin resistant and has that response, they're usually eating again 
before that glucose response has normalized. You know, if it's taking six hours for that to respond, most people in that situation have already started their next meal. And so now we've entered a, a state basically where that glucose level is just never coming back into a normal range. Um, when we started working with, you know, now we've worked with thousands of clients and we've seen thousands of data points, you start to see trends, you start to see patterns. And basically everything that we were taught from a nutrition perspective, how to manage diabetics, pre-diabetics glucose levels, you can very easily just like put that in a little, little bucket, toss that up, shred that, burn it in the trash can, because it just doesn't work because of that huge glucose response you get even from some minimal carbohydrates at that point. Like it just doesn't work. Yeah. You'll like this story. When I was 23, I believe I went to work for my mentor who was a naturopathic physician and he was about my age at the time. And he was a really fit, good looking guy. And he told me, this is in the early nineties. And he said, stop doing cardio and start lifting weights, like number one. And then I think probably the third or fourth day I was there, he wanted to take me to lunch. And I ordered, I think like chicken, some kind of, I think it was chicken fettuccine, some kind of chicken pasta dish. And he said, you're going to pass out in an hour. And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not. And sure enough, an hour later, I'm sitting in my chair at the front desk and I'm like snoozing off between patients. And he comes up and puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, how do you feel now? And he taught me right then and there the importance of avoiding carbohydrates. This was before there was a paleo diet or, I mean, there were terms didn't even exist. And he was like, stop eating breads and refined carbohydrates and pastas, especially in the middle of your day, focus on your protein, lift weights. I mean, it was all the things that, you know, I had just come out of my bachelor's degree and it was the opposite of what I had just learned in school. Yeah. And so he really was the person to turn me onto this. And he taught me that people's metabolic health was really the root cause of virtually everything. And then I was such a nerd in naturopathic school. I was telling my husband this story the other day, so I'll share it with you. I remember in differential diagnosis class, and that's a class where you have to learn about a condition and then physicians have the obligation to diagnose. It's a privilege and a, and a you know, we, we must do it. Uh, other healthcare professionals do not necessarily have to diagnose. And so inside of that diagnosis, like someone presents and it's like, it's asthma. Well, what are the other things it could be? Or what are the other contributing root causes, right? And so we had to come up with a, what's called a differential. And I started seeing a pattern very early on in all of my differential diagnosis training, which was a very challenging course because it requires you to know and, and, and be able to retrieve an immense amount of information. Yeah. And every single differential had diabetes in it. Every single one, diabetes type two. And I remember asking my professor, I'm like, so basically every single condition that we're dealing with on this planet for the most part probably has metabolic dysfunction at its root core. And he was like, yeah, pretty much. So that was the that was the take home that I learned early on. So when I beat this drum and then, you know, COVID came along and I was like, hey guys, it seems to be hitting the diabetics hardest. This was like early data out of China. And so I really have doubled down on it since then because how you go into anything metabolically is going to dictate how you endure and exit, right? And so I think that your product is such a valuable, I mean, easily the coolest biohacking device I've ever used. Hands down. I have, I have the Aura Ring. I have the Whoop. I have all the things. And the most helpful information that I've gotten in real time was using your biosensor. Like it just, <clears throat> I knew how to interpret a lot of it. And I, I understood the mechanics of metabolic health. So I'm sure it was easier for me than I would say a layperson. But man, was it eye-opening. And one of the, going back to what you said, 
I did notice those spikes if I kind of ate too close together or I'm kind of a grazer. So I'll eat and then I'll eat again and then I'll have a little strawberry and then I'll have a little bite of this. And so I was like, woo, spikes, spikes, spikes. And I knew that wasn't, that's not a great place to be, right? I mean, we kind of want to spike and come down and sit for a while. Is that correct? Yeah. Ideally, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like, again, there's never a one size fits all, but as a general approach, I really try to emphasize to people to have a you know, a larger meal at a time that is satiating, you're getting enough protein, you're getting, you know, nutrient density, and then you're letting it kind of normalize from there, taking several hours in between meals. I know there's always the circumstance of real life gets in the way. So we have to be flexible with some of these more like rigid rules of don't always get the opportunity to have a large meal. Sometimes you're like working and things are chaotic, but ideally it's not just like grazing all day because you are never getting back down to that normal value. And that's where you can really double check with what is your 24 hour average glucose of, you know, is that in check? Because, and again, what we're aiming for on our end as an optimal value isn't necessarily the same as what would be an optimal equivalent of an A1C. So I'm sure your audience is familiar with the hemoglobin A1C, which is essentially your average glucose. Um, If we're looking at it from an A1C perspective and you want to be below the pre-diabetic threshold, I think that average is out to like 117 milligrams per deciliter average glucose. But from the research we've done and what we have seen and just analyzing our own uh, data sets of our customers is that we really want to aim for an average glucose below 105 as kind of that upper threshold for optimal outcomes. Okay. So if we're looking at that, and that's part of our daily score, Um, as I mentioned, you know, we have a one through 10 score that gives you a daily snapshot. One component of that is your average glucose. And that helps you kind of take into account of If you're kind of going up and down all day and maybe the spikes aren't that big and they're not that dramatic because you're just grazing on these small meals, but then you're never really coming back down, it might be driving that average glucose up because you're never having those lower numbers to kind of counter it a little bit. Uh, so it's kind of contextual. Um, for some people, it's, it's just hard to get them to eat those bigger meals, but that is what I encourage. Well, we, you know, my generation was, and I don't know what you were taught in your dietitian training, but it was like six meals a day if you, yes, you know. unfortunately still the training yeah. <laughs> was from the last time I went through it. Yeah. And I think your story is incredible too with your, uh, was it your professor, but, or a, it was my a mentor. mentor. Yeah. Yeah. Way ahead of the time. I had a similar revolution as your uh, differential diagnosis where When I was working in the hospitals, I was working in the ICU primarily, and I started to really get frustrated by the experience of the type of situations where people are coming to the ICU. It's usually like a DKA from uncontrolled diabetes or needing an urgent amputation because of uncontrolled diabetes or needing to go on dialysis because of uncontrolled diabetes. You see these themes over and over. And so when I left the hospital, that's also the kind of the rabbit hole I went down is what is that root cause that is the most common amongst these situations we're seeing and what can we do about it? And that's what really brought me to metabolic health, glucose, and then this technology of continuous glucose monitoring to help drive some of that core issue we're seeing. And it really comes down to metabolic health as that foundation layer. It is. It's everything. I mean, it is the root cause of virtually every, I call them lifestyle, chronic lifestyle diseases, like cardiovascular disease and all the diseases, cancer. I mean, so many of these, yeah, there, sometimes we get a bad roll of of the dice, but for the most part, if you're bathing, if your cells are bathing in insulin all day, 
because of insulin resistance. It's uh, that's a tough one. It's not a good yeah. place to be. What I did find interesting was, let's go back to that beef noodle soup. Once I spiked my, because normally I would spike and come down and I tried to only do like one spike a day and not too many you know, overall. But what I noticed, oh, and not even that high, but that sent me, I think above 140. It was not pretty. My blood sugar handling the rest of the day was a complete train wreck. The whole rest of the day was just me. It was, I, I refer to it as brittle. It was just super up and down and not nearly as smooth and, and linear as it had been. So whatever I did to myself messed me up <laughs> for the rest of the day. And I was sort of discombobulated metabolically. And I, that was really, really interesting to me. Do you see that? Is that yeah, the thing? Yeah, do you see that sometimes? And I also think part of it, and I don't know if this is what happened with you, but a lot of times when somebody has a meal that is maybe outside of their normal or really gives them a less optimal glucose response, then it starts this craving cycle too. Because a lot of times we see that glucose spike and then we see a dip and that's a little bit of reactive hypoglycemia, mm -hmm. which is much more common than what people realize. We see it often and it's typically associated then with symptoms of you know, shakiness, the normal hypoglycemic symptoms, but also hunger and cravings because your body is like, we're low on energy. I'm getting hypoglycemic. We need to eat. So for a lot of people, it will start this roller coaster of kind of having dysregulated hunger signals from some of those more, you know, dysregulated glucose responses. So that's part of it. The other thing, as you're mentioning with the brittle responses is some of those other factors as well. When we put ourselves in a temporary insulin resistant state from something like stress or poor sleep, we also see people have much more brittle responses. So the body is just not as robust as it might be under normal conditions. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, those are the things that when you start to see the data, it's hard to ignore it. But when you tell people when they don't have the data, they very much want to ignore it. And so that's where data, real time data that's coming from your body, not somebody else's, you know, not just information you're consuming is such a powerful behavior change driver because suddenly it's like, oh, I can't ignore this. I can't run away from this. I'm seeing it come from my own body. But uh, that's what helps people usually prioritize some of those more um, subjective types of priorities like stress and sleep. Well, that's what I was going to talk to you about next because that was it. I, I often, I have been preaching for years and years that sleep is everything because if with, you know, just a few nights of disrupted sleep and you are in a transient pre-diabetic state, you, you, you get into a metabolic mess. And I, I was also traveling at that time. So I was at a conference. I was staying up too late. I was sleeping in a bed that I, you know, wasn't mine. I was in a hotel. So I was waking up all night and I noticed as the days went on, my response got more and more brittle because it, especially the last night I did not get a good night's sleep. And the whole next day was just, whoosh, it was just a train wreck. And so it really made me realize, like you said, in real time, seeing my real lived experience of sleep disruption impacting my blood sugar regulation was I mean, that was enough to make me double down. And I mean, I I'm, I joke that I when I was dating, I, I got married recently, but when I was dating, a lot of folks in my age category don't sleep well. And so I was often, I'd often just break up with the boyfriends because I'd be like, your sleep's a wreck. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I, can't. I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm very maniacal about sleep as well for the same reasons. You see it and you can't ignore it. And, and some people are like, oh, like, 
you know, have a little fun, like stay out. And it's like, nope, <laughs> it's too important. It's it not worth it. And as you age, it. like as you age, it, it becomes hard. I'm one of those middle-aged women who swells. And so it's very apparent very quickly if I've had too many carbohydrates or if my sleep's been disrupted, like I'm a puff ball the next day. And I just can't, I can't ignore it anymore. When you're younger, you kind of get away with it. You're like, oh, I got some, you know, puff around my ankles from my socks or whatever. But as you get older, the bands of tolerance for that get tighter and shorter. And so I'm a vain person and I <laughs> I want to feel good and look good. When I had that big spike from the beef noodle soup, I was with a bunch of doctors at this conference and my friend said, well, how do you feel? And I'm like, I feel terrible. So yeah. it was really like real time, instantaneously within 20 minutes of eating, I could see why I felt terrible. And I just, I think everybody should do a trial run and check like every human. Yeah, absolutely. And related to that, I want to loop back to sleep as well, but related to kind of how you feel, that's a huge part of connecting data with your subjective experience. A lot of people will feel crappy all the time and they don't realize it or they don't know what to pinpoint it to. And so something like the continuous glucose monitor that's giving you that continuous data stream helps people at the end of the day actually eat more intuitively because it's enhancing what is our, you know, interoceptive sensitivity, which is essentially just our ability to feel those internal signals. So it's really interesting because a lot of people in the healthcare space will always be like, well, people already know that they feel cruddy when they eat candy. Why do they need the data to show it? And working with real people is when you realize, yes, they feel cruddy when they eat this way, but they aren't putting the connection together that, oh, this is truly, you know, a real physiological response I'm having, and that's why I feel cruddy. And that helps people really um, figure out, you know, how to eat in the long term, where you don't necessarily need to rely on the data then, but you've made that connection and you've enhanced that mind-body connection to know what you feel at different states which actually then leads to more mindful eating in the long term and more um, intentional eating is what I like to call it. It's really like weighing the pros and cons of every once in a while, you're going to have something fun and you're probably not going to feel amazing, but you don't want to do it mindlessly in a sense that's like, oh, I'm just grazing on the snacks that are potato chips are in front of me because I'm at a party and they're out. Uh, they're not worth it maybe in that case because you don't like them that much and you're going to feel cruddy. And it's different than making that mindful decision that it's Christmas. This is my favorite dessert that my mom makes every year and I'm going to have it type of situation. Yeah. Yeah. I joked that my biosensor was shaming me. <laughs> I'd, I'd go for some snacky something, any snacky something, and it wasn't good. It wouldn't be pretty on the, the data wouldn't be pretty, the data points. And I'm like, oh, my, my NutriSense is shaming me right now. My aura ring shames me at night when I don't go to bed on time yeah. and, my, and I eat too late and my NutriSense sense shames me when I start dabbling with refined carbohydrates that I shouldn't probably be doing. Um, yeah. You wanted to go back to sleep. Did you have more that you wanted to share on that? Yeah, I just think it's really interesting. There's a ton of research on this, but we also see it anecdotally from all of our customers. But of course, it's not talked about as much as it should be. But both that sleep fragmentation, as you were mentioning, so maybe you got a full eight hours of sleep in bed or even nine hours of sleep in bed. But if it's fragmented, you know, you're getting interrupted deep sleep or you're waking throughout the night or sleep insufficiency. So not the adequate amount of time in sleep stages. There's research that shows that glucose control can be as much as 40% worse, so 40% higher glucose levels the next day for everybody, including non-diabetics. 
you know, and it only gets more exacerbated the more insulin resistant you are at baseline because your system no longer knows how to process. You know, if, if you're diabetic, you're insulin resistant, you already have a system that is struggling a little bit to just process glucose levels at baseline. Uh, so then when we add in a factor of poor sleep, you know, you're stressing the system even more. But we see this in our non-diabetics, our ultra healthy folks, that they get a poor night of sleep and then the next day those same same exact meal they eat every single morning is suddenly they're not responding as well to. And so it's just something to be really mindful of, um, especially if you might be in a chronic sleep deprivation. I know we work with a lot of new parents that aren't necessarily have the option to get more sleep than what they're currently getting. And so that means you're going to have to adjust the way that you approach food during that the, you know, during that situation or during that time period where you're not getting this great sleep, you know, where when we're tired, we sometimes want to eat things that are even worse for us. And so it's being, again, aware of that helps us, empowers us with the ability to make better decisions when we have one, you know, health lever that maybe we don't have as much control over. It's really about being mindful of like, I don't have as much control over my sleep right now. I have to have even more control over what I'm eating. So it's finding that balancing act. This is so important what you're saying, because I struggled tremendously postpartum with weight loss. I could not get the baby fat off. And it was really troubling to me because I'd always had such an easy time. I was in my early mid twenties. I was 25. I'd always had such an easy time with my weight. And that definitely produced a huge challenge for me. And I was kind of a carb junkie at the, I am a carb addict, like straight up. So I don't bring it into the house. And I have admitted this multiple times to my audience. I don't, um, carbs are the, the yummier and crunchier and saltier, (laughs) the better. So I just don't bring them around me or they're gone. And I, if I do go at them, I just know I'm going at them, but I was eating a lot of carbohydrates after my daughter was born. And that was such a challenging, frustrating time. And I, I hear this often from other new moms and it's hard because you just nailed it. Like if they would focus on a protein heavy, lower mm-hmm. carbohydrate approach. And we see the same type of situation happen in perimenopause, really, right? When the sleep just, I'm yep. sure you're seeing the same data points. I would just see this clinically, so I'm guessing, but this is what I would see. The sleep disruption starts from the hot flashes and all of a sudden, boom, there's weight that wasn't there before and it's harder to get off. Actually, the reason I reached out to you guys this more lately or more recently, I should say, was because I was starting to get a layer of fluff around my midsection and I, I'm almost 49. Like I knew it was coming. It's challenging. It's not as easy to get off and it wasn't really budging with any of the normal approaches that I take. And so your, the two um, rounds with the sensor was so helpful to me to see maybe it was just a swig of delicious fresh squeezed orange juice, right? But like eat, drinking that after protein instead of just drinking it on its own. Versus, you know, if I ate, yeah. if I drank it after having some beef, I was fine. If I drank it alone, there was a huge spike. And so I think, I think the problem that a lot of Americans in particular are having, and you you would know, I I should probably ask you if I can look at your data at some point anonymously because. I was sitting in a restaurant with my buddy on like day 13 of the monitor and he said, show me your monitor and I, or the, show me the data on the app. And I showed him, he's a doctor, functional medicine doctor. And he looked at it and he was like, tell me where these spikes came in. I told him and he looked around the room and he goes, he was just like, 
well, what are all these people doing? And I'm like, I think the normal American might be, this might be a hot mess. Like, I think it might be a total disaster for the rest of the group in this room because I'm pretty stringent. Like, I'm pretty careful yeah. and I know how to combine my food correctly. What do you, what do you, what have you been seeing on your end as the data collectors? Yeah, and we, we have a widespread of customers. So we have the ultra healthy that want to stay healthy. And I love that we can serve them too, because as you're probably aware, if they go to their physician and say, I want this tool to maintain my health and prevent, they're probably going to get pushed away and laughed at. So we are happy to serve them. A lot of people don't want to help the healthy people. Uh, we also have a lot of people who are maybe like on the bubble of metabolic dysfunction. And then we also have people who have multiple chronic health conditions, lifestyle related, that are really trying to take action. Um, and glucose is all over the board. And this is kind of brings me back to my original point of, you know, you, you cringe sometimes at some of the things you were taught um, and some of the things you did in the very beginning. But in a hospital, when somebody gets a new diabetes diagnosis or you get a consult because they have uncontrolled diabetes, the standard protocol is to teach them how to count their carbs, chase it with insulin, you know, have, you know, 45 grams of carbohydrate at each meal is kind of the approach for a female. Uh, so it's consistent carbohydrates so that you know exactly what your glucose is going to do. And now I know if you ate that, even if it was whole food carbohydrate source, which it's usually not, um, but if you ate 45 grams of carbohydrate from a sweet potato with a steak and you have insulin resistance, it is not going to look good. It is not going to be a glucose response that is helpful to you in any way, shape, or form. And then you're going to be on that glucose roller coaster that I mentioned the rest of the day, guaranteed. Now, if somebody who's very metabolically healthy eats that, it's, it's kind of a toss up. It depends on the person. Some people have higher carbohydrate thresholds than others where they might be able to consume a little bit more carbohydrates and maintain really good glucose control. We're always going to still encourage high protein intake, protein first and nutrient dense sources, whole foods. Um, but somebody who is a 220 pound male who weight lifts and has a ton of lean body mass and is expending a lot of energy, they might be able to have a decent amount of carbohydrates at each meal and maintain really good metabolic health. But a female who maybe is also really healthy going through menopause, a much smaller stature, they probably are not going to be able to have the same carbohydrate threshold as you know somebody else. And that brings us back to menopause, not only are sleep disruptors more likely to happen during that stage. Uh, similar to, you know, you might not be able to control the fact that you aren't sleeping as well, but menopause also is making women more insulin resistant. And that's just something, again, one of those things where you're a new parent, you don't suddenly get to sleep eight hours through the night without interruptions. If you're going through menopause, you can't control the fact that your hormones are changing and that's having a true physiological impact on a lot of things, but also your metabolic health, your glucose control, your carbohydrate threshold. And so, you know, we naturally see that significant decrease in your ability to dispose of the same amount of glucose, the so same amount of incoming carbohydrates for women pre-menopause versus post-menopause. Um, and that's, that's just a fact. And so we can't pretend that it's not real and we can't pretend it doesn't change the approach you might have to take. And that's where we can be empowered with information, um, empowered with support and resources so we can find something that works for people at whatever stage or situation they're in. I love that. 
And it's so true. And it's, you know, for the men listening, it's the same. As you ate, it's the same thing. You're going to hit andropause and you're going to become more insulin resistant. I was honored to be able to take care of, my mentor passed away and I was, I took over his practice and I was honored to be able to care for some of his original patients. And these folks were in their eighties and nineties. I mean, these were the most active, cute, elderly folks you've ever seen. And I watched every single one of them become diabetic on their labs because of the chronic muscle wasting that occurs with aging, the inflammaging, you know, the inflammation that comes with aging. That's just part of the deal. The cellular senescence where their cells and their stem cells start going to sleep. And most notably them believing they can continue to eat the way that they did in their forties and fifties. And it eventually we're, we're all going to become carbohydrate intolerant and insulin resistant to some Mm -hmm. degree as we age. That is why I'm such a a proponent of people putting muscle mass on their body when they can, because that's like the backup generator, you know? That's, yeah. It's, it's what we all need. And folks would get so frustrated with me when I'm like, hey, you're pre-diabetic, you're pre-diabetic, you're, oh, guess what? Now you're diabetic. And um, the last part, I'll, and I've shared this before, but I've been thinking about it so much lately, and maybe you have seen the data on this on your end, but they... As, as we age, our stomach atrophies, our stomach lining atrophies, we're not able to digest as much. We actually have to hit a higher protein threshold to metabolize protein, right? And then their dentition gets messed up and often they'll, so they'll stop eating protein. So they actually, yeah. most of the older folks I know are on low protein diets, just sort of by default, or sadly a partner may pass away, uh, you know, their spouse, and then they're eating alone. So they're starting to rely more on packaged foods and canned foods. And it's just a terrible downward spiral, but ultimately they end up on dialysis or something terrible. Anyway, I don't mean to be grim, but do you have yeah. older folks that are using your biosensor and yeah, we do. And we have some really, really inspiring older folks. So I'll also say that where it's, it is um, an uphill battle where you're fighting against some of these natural things that are going to happen. As you mentioned, you're going to lose muscle mass at a more rapid pace. You're going to need even more protein because your digestibility isn't as strong. Um, all of these things happen. Your body's naturally going to become a little bit more insulin resistant and less carbohydrate tolerant. But if we're setting up a good foundation early on, the earlier the better. But if you're 50, 60, 70, it doesn't mean you can't start now. You can always make improvements at whatever stage you're in. But if you set some of that good foundation and then adjust what you're doing to the reality of where you're at, I see a lot of people have great success. And similar with women going through menopause, the women I see who have the best glucose control throughout menopause, who have the most control over their symptoms, are the women who are prioritizing protein and are doing strength training. So I cannot absolutely agree with you more on the strength training. You know, our muscle mass, the amount of lean body mass you have, it does many, many things, but it's also the largest sink for our glucose to go. You know, think about it as just like your disposal system. So the more lean body mass you have, the more you're setting yourself up for success for glucose control and metabolic health. It does a lot of other things. It's certainly not its only benefit, But one of the most successful tactics across the board is just really prioritizing building that lean muscle mass. We see it as like a huge differentiator in people of all categories. 
Oh, I love that. I love that you have the data to back that up because that's the drum I beat constantly. Yeah. You know, it's, I call it a mop. It's the mop. It just mops totally. up all the yeah. glucose. It's like an insurance policy almost. Like it's helping you buffer some of the things you're going to face in life. A thousand percent. And when you have like a bad, you're traveling and you might be out of your routine or uh, you're sick or you're having to do something. It is that thing that is going to help you be a little bit more robust and stable and strong through some of these fluctuating, you know, life experiences or change in your day-to-day routine that might, that is going to happen. You know, we don't live in a perfect uh, research facility where we get to actually control and execute exactly as we want all the time. And so having that insurance policy, that strong uh, lean body mass to fall back on is so, so important. It's everything. It's, it's the ticket. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I joke, you know, I would never tell anyone not to have health insurance, but I joke since I never use mine <laughs> and I believe health insurance is literally only if you are dying in a hospital, it does very little good if you've got a chronic lifestyle disease. Um, I would rather spend my dollars on my coach my training yeah. then to build my muscle any day than I would on my health insurance because I use it a whole lot more. And I've it's saved my butt a few times. <laughs> so yeah. quite literally. Yeah. And I joke, like put a butt on. Like I think the most metabolically <laughs> active muscle that you can focus on that you should focus on is those thighs and hamstrings and glutes and build that, build those big muscle groups up and build a big old sink, a big old mop, and you too will enjoy the benefits. Um, Before I let you go, can I ask you one more thing that I noticed? And I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. I noticed, so I'm big, I'm big into beef. I'm big into ruminant animals. I, I think that they just provide such a nutritious womp of goodness in a highly absorbable way. I can't believe I, I mean, I spent 10 years as a vegetarian and I can't believe I deprived myself of carnitine and creatine and I'm just so many things. Uh, It messed up my joints. It messed up my hormones. It messed up so many things. And I'm not saying that my audience knows this about me, so I'm not ostracizing any vegetarians or vegans, but I did find this compelling and I was so excited about it. Every single time I ate a steak, like a big eight, 10 ounce steak. I was able to, cause I was on this trip, right? For this conference. And when I travel, I, I have such a particular gut that I just go to steakhouses every night. That's it. Like I'm going to splurge. I'm going to, I know everyone can't do that, but I am in a place in my life when I can. And I'm like, screw it, I'm going. So if I ate a big old steak and I followed it with even whomping doses of mashed potatoes, maybe even a sliver of gluten-free chocolate cake, you know, just a few bites or a few bites of high quality ice cream, it just, my my glucose went boop, just this beautiful little hump. Didn't spike, no pointy anything, just like yeah. bump. If I ate ground beef, I got a little bit more of a reaction. And if I ate shrimp or chicken, I would have a much more robust glucose response. So the quality of the protein clearly mattered, at least in my body. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, that's super interesting. As just like a general rule of thumb, one thing we see is that any type of protein before carbohydrates is better than carbohydrates on empty stomach cells. Start there as like people are always asking, like, what are the universal truths that you see among everyone? We're always like protein first. And so even thinking about like the soup you had, I'm sure like the noodles were mixed in. If you had had some protein before you had the soup, it probably would have helped a little bit. Or, you know, people will have... Um, usually carbohydrates first at a restaurant, like they're snacking on the chips or the bread. And it's like, if you're going to do it, just wait till at least you get your entree and you have some protein first. It's going to make a really big difference. 
but quality also does matter. And part of that might be the fat content is also helping to blunt some of that glucose response. A steak is, you know, a much fattier piece of protein than something like even ground beef usually or um, chicken especially. And so it's possible that the fat is helping to blunt. So the reason the protein blunts that glucose response is because we're slowing down digestion. We're not putting carbohydrates into an empty digestive tract to quickly be metabolized, which leads to that dramatic glucose spike. And so mixture of protein and fat especially can help kind of blunt that. But I think also the quality probably matters. I don't think there's as much like research about that, but we know from people who do dirty keto, so they'll be hitting their macros and they're in ketosis, but they're eating hot dogs and, you know, fill in the blank dirty keto product. We They do not have as good of glucose response as somebody who's doing a whole food keto-based diet. We've seen that over and over. And there's something about you're lacking the nutrients you need to really build that strong infrastructure again. It's back to like making sure you're nurturing your system. And it's not just down to macros. It's not just down to calories. It's really that quality that matters. If we no biochemistry. If you look on the inside, you know that there's a lot going on and we need all of those pieces to really function optimally. So I'm guessing it comes down to probably the fat content, but also just we get a lot of nutrients from a really high quality steak. Yeah. Um, and probably a combination. It's the best. I had no idea. I can't believe I neglected that for so long. It would have been a game. If I had started lifting weights and eating steak in my 20s, I would be a different human today. It's just absolutely, I'm, I'm so excited when I meet young people like you who have already figured it out. I'm like, you guys are <laughs> way ahead. You're going to have such beautiful hormones and menopause. I started training, you know, I, I mean, I was eating good in my 30s, really good, but probably way too plant-based for my gut and for just, you know, way too much raw kale. Not a good time. Um, but I really started training for menopause around 40. I, I really started getting serious. And I was, at that time, I was actually running. I mean, I, I the reason I love your biosensors because I've been walking around for almost a decade poking my finger all the time with my little- It's not fun. No, yeah. it's, it hurts. It's terrible. And yeah. one time I gave myself a little cutaneous infection because I was poking it so much. Oh, and I'm no. like, this is this is garbage. And so I was not able to access a, any type of um, biosensor or monitor because- again, I was healthy and my doctors were like, oh, you don't need that. So it's incredible yeah. that you guys offer the service and subscriptions for people. And they can do several months at a time, correct? When they sign up for a subscription, what do you suggest is ideal for people? Yeah, so we offer a few different plans. As you mentioned, um, each sensor lasts for 14 days. So that's another difference between like an Aura Ring or whoop strap. It's not one piece of hardware that you then wear forever. They last for 14 days. You don't take it off during that time. And then at the end of the 14 days, peel it off, toss it like a Band-Aid, put on the next one. So we usually do two per month and we'll do a no commitment plan where you're going to get that two. You do it for one month or we have like three month minimum commitment, six month minimum commitment or 12 month minimum commitment. Um, all of those, you know, gets cheaper the longer you're committing. What I typically recommend, the month to month is great if you're just not sure and you want to try it first because there's no commitment involved. And then you could always switch to a cheaper commitment plan after doing a month if you want to. So that's great if you're not sure. It's also great if you're really healthy, you're already doing a lot of good habits and you want to find out maybe how your normal routine 
is affecting you, what little things you want to switch around, or maybe just gain some of that um, assurance that the things you're doing are good to help you kind of stay motivated. So a month is good in that situation. But if you are experimenting with your diet, you're not really sure what to eat, maybe you have some signs of insulin resistance, I would recommend at least a three-month minimum because it takes some time to get to know your data and also make some changes, see the numbers start to improve and kind of get on a plan. So really depends on what your health goal is. But if you're not sure, you can always start with the month to month plan and then switch to a commitment if you if you like it and you're making good progress. Yeah, I think honestly, I think everybody should do this. I said this before in 2020 when you guys sent me one, I think everybody should try this out and see what their blood sugar is doing because something we didn't talk about too much, but I mean, that was another shocker to me was... Uh, anticipated stress, not even actual stress, but just anticipated stress. Like, oh, I'm headed to the airport. I'm hopping in my car. Yeah. Boom, blood sugar spike. Uh, another one was I was trying to get to a concert that I'd organized several friends. And it was, you know, once you get more than two people going to a thing, it becomes a thing. And I don't love that. <laughs> and so I immediately had my anticipatory stress of like hurting the cats uh, socially and boom, huge, huge glucose spike. And I was shocked. So I think... Folks, you know, we might use it for 14 days a month and see what's going on, but living your life with this thing on for a few months, I think would be really compelling information for people. And uh, quite honestly, a game changer, like just a huge yeah. game changer to really set you up to understand what it is, how you're eating, what it is doing to you. And because you hear so often, Dr. Tina, I'm doing everything. I'm doing everything you say, and I'm just, it's not better. And I'm like, well, slap on a, a monitor and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're susceptible, you know, to kind of the yo-yo dieting pattern where you have a lot of motivation, you'll stay on track and then maybe you regain all the weight, go back and forth, then doing something like a six or 12 month plan is something I would recommend if that is a pattern of yours that you know you get into because that real-time data, again, helps a lot of people stick to the plan that they wanna do because it's much more motivating to you know, instill those habits when you're seeing it come at you right then, right there. It's the immediate reward, immediate gratification of the habit you just did. So if that's also a pattern that you fall into, I would recommend one of those longer plans. Whereas somebody who maybe is more intrinsically motivated already, they're super disciplined, super determined, what I recommend is doing it for a certain amount of time where you gain the information, one to three months, and then doing it once a month every year, kind of as like a check back in, see how things are going, you know, fine tune, kind of more like an annual physical or annual labs type of approach. So that, that can be good for the people who maybe have their own accountability system or their own inherent, uh, you know, whatever is working for them to really stay on track, but they need the data in order to really fine tune. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I completely agree. I was thinking the same. I was like, I should just do this for one month every year and make sure, yeah. especially as I'm aging. Because uh, again, like I said, things are not the way they used to be. And it, yeah. it it's kind of like an enzymatic reaction, you know, it, it definitely... You start to notice it in your early 40s. You definitely, I was in the best shape of my life when I was 40. And then 45, you're like, huh, oh, this is a little challenging. And then all of a sudden, it's like you look at a prune and you wake up with fluff <laughs> on your tummy and puffy eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. 
And seasonality too. Sometimes people will do it like twice a year because that, they're eating a lot different maybe in the summer versus the winter. Um, so that that's another thing too, just changes person to person. Awesome. I love it. Well, this has been so insightful. I had a list and we got to all of them. I'm, I'm so happy to have you here and thank you for answering all of my questions. Where can folks find you? Uh, I know you guys have a great Instagram account that I've learned a lot from, but where anywhere else? Yeah, so on our website, which is Nutrisense.io, we have a blog and a newsletter. We're putting out a ton of content, all things related to metabolic health, general health, and then also social media. We're Nutrisense.io on all, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you like to get your content, we're there. That reminds me, you do have a great blog. I learned a lot from the blog. I learned a lot about the sensor from the blog. And then you guys always show up on Instagram with the best little sound bites of information, which <laughs> I already know, but the way you guys say it is captivating and interesting. And I think, man, for folks who don't know this stuff, this is great. This is great sound bites of information. So I really appreciate the work you guys are doing. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you for letting me check out your, your biosensor and get so much information for myself. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate your support. And it's always good to talk to like-minded people as well. Yes. And for the audience that's not watching this, we have the same t-shirt on. <laughs> yeah. It's like we knew we're, we're, we're in sync. We're besties. We're twinsies with our with our olive green t-shirt. So, <laughs> well, Kara, thank you so much for coming on the Dr. Tina show. And I'd love to have you come back again and we can we can dive into a part two of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.